If your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, we are doing something that I know we, 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 we are so excited to do, and that is we're doing a deep dive into a genealogy. Um, and I, I know this is the part of the Bible. Every time it shows up, we, we just skip. Uh, but you, you can't, can't do that now. So Matthew chapter 1, we looked at the first three verses last week uh, where we saw the patriarchs. Now we want to see the wilderness and the conquest generation. So you'll find it on page 849 of your pew Bibles, if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The Apostle Matthew writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 4, And Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for allowing us to be here this morning. We ask, as always, you would open our hearts so we could receive your word our mind that we would understand it, our eyes that we would see your glory and your kingdom, our ears that we would heed and hear your gospel, our mouths that we would speak the truth of Christ to to ourselves, to one another in love, to all those around us, and our hands and our feet that we would go in obedience, transformed by the exclusive work of the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, as we engage with these names. These are not just mere names on a paper but they are saints like like we are called to be. May we learn from their mistakes, may we learn from their triumphs, but ultimately may we become more like Jesus. May I decrease so that you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. May be seated. I want to see if you can tell me what hymn these lyrics come from, okay? Let's see if I get this right. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just don't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the others by the time I finish my song? Did you guess which thing was not like the others? Did you guess which thing don't belong? If you guess this one is not like the others, then you're absolutely right. That didn't rhyme right. It's like Shrek wrote this or something. I don't know. You recognize the song? It's not in your hymn book. That was a joke. Do you recognize the song? It's Sesame Street. How old are some of you all? Or how young are some of you? I don't know which. Sesame Street's been around since Lincoln, at least, right? I mean, before there was television, there was Big Bird. Had to be. It's like Loch Ness or something. It's always been around. Well, of course, that is one of the more popular songs by Sesame Street, or apparently not, to some of you. Uh, but, but the point of, you, you know, in Sesame Street, those who had a happy childhood, you, you would have, let's say, uh, uh, three pairs of shoes. Maybe uh, one would be like, like a sandal or another would be like, like, like a basketball shoe and one would just be uh, a, a normal shoe, whatever that would be. And then you would have, I don't know, an anchor, right? just something random, right? And, and the question would be, which one of these is not like all the others? And then a little kid will come in, try to pick up the anchor, realize he couldn't and called his mother, right? Whatever, whatever it might be, Elmo come and, and pick it up and whatever it might be. That, that, that's the point. Well, one of the things that as we read through what appears to be a list of names, names that maybe we struggle to pronounce and names we've never heard of, if we would read through it, I suspect that some of these names aren't like all the others. 
Let us look at this list because I know how excited you are about it. Let's start with Dodge Ram here. Now, let you know, we know virtually nothing about Ram. He is found only in the Bible through genealogies. His name means high or exalted. That's about all we know about this man. Or consider Aminadab, my favorite name to, to pronounce in this list. He had a daughter named Elisheba who married Aaron, Moses' brother. And so if you know anything about Aaron, Aaron is the first of the high priests. And so so that means that in the line of Jesus, there is a connection not only with Judah and that Judah line, the line of David, but also of the line of the Levites. It doesn't mean that Jesus is a Levite, but that he has an aunt way back who marries into uh, the Levitical family. In Exodus chapter 6, 23, we see clearly that um, uh, Aminadab is known for uh, two of his kids. Here is Elisheba and then uh, Nashon. That means we can turn to Nashon, who is quite a significant figure in the line of Jesus. Uh, two things he's really known for. He is part of the wilderness generation. Uh, that is a generation that comes out of Egypt and, and spends 40 years in, in, in the desert. In Numbers chapter 2, verse 3, it is clear that he is a leader in the tribe of Judah. And so he would, he would lead them through the wilderness. And so Moses would organize the, the people of Israel by tribe, and each tribe had a leader over, over them. And Nashon, the son of Amenadab, and the brother-in-law of Aaron led the people of Judah. And this meant that he took the lead as he went through the wilderness. As Luke, uh, Numbers chapter 10, rather, says the standard of the camp of the people of Judah set out first by their companies. And over their company was Nashon, son of Amenadab. And part of this responsibility is that after the tabernacle, the, the portable temple, if you will, was completed, on behalf of the tribe of Judah, it was Nashon who offered the very first uh, offering um, of the Judahites. And so he who, uh, he who offered his offering the first day was Nashon, son of Amenadab of the tribe of Judah. In its own long, a very long genealogy, 1 Chronicles chapter 2 it tells us that Nashon then is the prince of Judah. His responsibilities were great and significant, so much so that he is called the prince of the sons of Judah. Well, Nashon, the son of Amenadad, had a son. His name was Solomon. Now, Solomon is mentioned, again, only in genealogies. The only thing he is known for is emphasized here in Matthew's gospel. Two things. One, he is the uh, husband of Rahab and the father-in-law of Ruth. This means, from what we can gather from this, he was part of the generation that entered the promised land and took conquest of it. And the best prize he got out of that conquest was he got to marry the woman who protected the spies, the Jewish spies, that led to the destruction of Jericho. Not only that, but his son Boaz marries Ruth, who has a whole book dedicated to her. So Solomon has a, a boy by the name of Boaz. Boaz is, is a beloved character in the Bible. One of my favorite men of the Old Testament is Boaz. Fantastic story in the book of Ruth. He's known for a number of things. One, he is the son of a Jewish man with a long lineage and a Gentile harlot. 
He was from Bethlehem, which later becomes known as the city of David. He was a man of great integrity, uh, which is insignificant considering of when he lived. Remember, he lived during the time of Judges, uh, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. He was wealthy, which allows him finally to be the kinsman redeemer of, Bo- of Ruth and Naomi. And so he is a significant figure in the biblical narrative. Well, he and Ruth have a child by the name of Obed. Obed is mentioned, again, only in genealogical list. Nothing else is known of him. His name means serving, uh, whatever uh, you want to do with that. And finally, we meet Jesse. Little is known about the father of David. Uh, You may recall that in terms of narrative, we looked at virtually everything the Bible has to say in our study of 1 Samuel, the story of David through 1 Samuel earlier this year. Remember that Jesse was the one who, who when Samuel the prophet showed up to, to anoint the king of Israel, he left David out of the midst. He, he didn't get the email or the text message. I guess we do text message now. So he didn't get that text. He just hang, hung out with the, with the sheep because they'll at least listen to him. And, and then so, so we get that from Jesse. Later on, David, while he's fleeing from Saul, has to uh, uh, take Jesse Uh, and and the rest of his family, his parents and everyone, to the Moabites. Remember that David's great-grandmother was a Moabitess, that's Ruth. So he he takes them there for for protection while Saul is trying to kill him. But beyond that, we know virtually nothing about Jesse. Whenever Jesse shows up in the Bible, particularly after the story of David, he is connected with prophecy. In that, that being that the promise was made to David that one would sit on his throne forever— Then the prophecy would say, like Isaiah 11, verse 1 and other passages, that a a stem would come from the shoot of Jesse, or the son of Jesse would do this or that. His name means I possess or even wealthy. Now, strikingly, these men are in the direct line of Jesus. Yet what what Matthew cares about in this portion of the genealogy, if you'll notice here, It's not the men, it's the women. And this is what's so striking. One of these things, we should say two of these things, at least in these two verses, are not like all the others. When we think of genealogies, particularly ancient genealogies, we want to see son of, son of, son of, son of. But suddenly we see women being mentioned. In fact, in Jesus' genealogy, at least from Matthew's perspective, there are five women named. Let's see if we can look at them, each of our, first of all, Tamar. We talked about Tamar last week, right? Remember that her first two husbands passed away. They were brothers. Uh, She was not given the third brother. And so she she plays the harlot and and sleeps with her father-in-law and produces Perez, who is of the line of Jesus. We talked about her last week. We see Rahab here in verses four and five as as well with Ruth. Later, perhaps next week, we'll look at uh, the text says the wife of Uriah or Uriah's wife, depending on your translation. Uh, You know that story, right? That's Bathsheba. And then finally, we see Mary mentioned by name in this text. Five women in the genealogy of Jesus. And you'll notice among these five women, I see at least two common themes among them. The first is that they are either sexual sinners or given challenging circumstances uh, by which they give birth to. Again, Tamar conceived with her father-in-law. Rahab was a harlot. Ruth was a poor widow. 
Bathsheba, um, uh, her husband was murdered by the man who impregnated her. And then Mary, still a virgin, conceives. Secondly, we should notice here about these women is they're, other than Mary, they're all Gentiles. Tamar, uh, the name suggests she's a Canaanite. Rahab is from Jericho among the Canaanites. Ruth is a Moabitess. And although Bathsheba's uh, nationality is never given, she marries a Hittite who was a sort of mercenary. Uriah was a mercenary for the Israelites. In other words, these women were outsiders. You remember last week we saw how how. Even in Jesus' genealogy, you will find broken people with broken past who, who are guilty of sin, and yet God's grace was sufficient for them. And in this week, we see particularly, if we can just highlight two as briefly as we can, Rahab and Ruth, what we see are people who should be on the outside of grace or grafted in to the family line of Jesus. Let us look quickly at the story of Rahab. Now, following the death of Moses, Israel, under the leadership of Joshua, entered the promised land. The problem is that the promised land is already populated, thus it must be conquered. And they start with Jericho. Two spies are sent into the city by Joshua, and immediately we see that Joshua has learned the lesson the hard way, right? Not that any of us would ever have to learn the hard way. You remember earlier in the book of Numbers, uh, Moses sent 12 spies, and you remember what happened? Ten of them came back and said, uh, this ain't going to work. Let's go back to Egypt, y'all. <laughs> right? It ain't too late. All right? Our tickets haven't expired. Okay, Let's just go back right? and, and we'll be slaves again. Two say, no, we got this. So what Joshua does is instead of sending 12 spies to report to the people, he sends two spies to report directly to him in leadership. He sends those two spies to, to seek out the land. We need to note that they were not trying to determine If they should attack, God had already commanded it, but rather to see how and where they should attack. Their presence in a brothel or innkeeper's house is not surprising at this time. Brothels were commonly populated by outside travelers, spies, conspirators, and things like that. In in, uh, Joshua chapter 2, we we, we see that Rahab hides the spies from the Jericho government, right? They come and say that word has it, you're hiding someone, and and she says that that is not the case. And the reason is given by Rahab because of her faith and fear of Yahweh. So Joshua 2, 9 says, and um, she said to the men who are looking for uh, the spies, or she says to the spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. That last line is significant. The Lord your God. Remember, she's a Gentile. She's pagan. She's a polytheist. Your God is maker of heavens and the earth. Thus, we see the genesis of her faith is likely connected actually to her line of work. Her interaction with traders and travelers would mean she regularly heard stories of people outside of Canaan coming in. And what are they talking about? There's a group of people, the Hebrews, marching from Egypt. They're coming here. 
They already destroyed Egypt. They destroyed the Amorites. And they will soon come to destroy us. In the end, Rahab, the harlot, is welcomed into the people of God. Although she spent her life worshiping false gods and guilty of much sin, she is welcomed by the people of God. Now contrast this in the story of Joshua with Achan. So the story of Jericho, I believe, is in Joshua chapter 2. The story of Achan is in Joshua chapter 7. You may remember the story of Achan. Remember that the Israelites were to go fight and, and they were to leave everything there, right? And you remember, Achan, what he does is he's wearing a very large coat and he hides everything in it, right? And no one seems to notice. He brings it into his camp. He buries all the good stuff, right? And then the Israelites go back out to battle. They get destroyed and it's discovered the treachery that's happened here, direct disobedience to God himself by Achan. So Achan and his family are then executed for disobedience and profiting from war. Now contrast those two people. Rahab, a Gentile harlot, hides the spies by faith and is blessed. Achan, on the other hand, a Jewish soldier, hides his sin and is condemned. So what we see then in these two stories is an insider becomes an outsider because of disobedience. But then we also see an outsider becomes an insider because of faith. Without her faith and generosity, the Jericho conquest, one wonders, could have ended differently. But not just Rahab here. What about the story of Ruth? Like Rahab, Ruth is a Gentile outsider, but still welcomed into the family of God. Initially, the family of Elimelech, a Jewish family from Bethlehem, because of, of, of a drought and famine, they flee uh, to the Moabites. The irony is that they leave Bethlehem, which means house of bread, because there was no bread in the house of bread, to the Moabites in order to get bread. And shortly thereafter, Elimelech's two sons, Malin and Kilian, be great names for your children or grandchildren, um, they marry, and shortly thereafter, Malin, Kilian, and Elimelech all die, leaving behind three widows. Naomi, the wife of Elimelech, thus the, the matriarch, she decides to return to Bethlehem, her home. And she encourages her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah, and Ruth to stay behind. Orpah, I don't want to say Oprah now. Orpah decides to stay in Moab, but Ruth refuses to stay in Moab, but returns to Bethlehem, a strange land to her, in order to take care of her aging mother-in-law. In fact, uh, Ruth herself says in chapter 1, uh, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Well, those initial years were difficult for Ruth and Naomi, two widows, and, and uh, uh, Ruth would go out into the field and she would pick up whatever scraps of wheat and whatnot she could from, from those harvesting the wheat and everything, and, and it was barely enough for them to get by. They, they had no authority, they had no influence, they had nothing. They, they were just barely surviving until eventually a uh, tall, dark, and handsome man with blue eyes and a British accent walks in or whatever it is the girls like these days. I, I don't know. Um, but uh, Brad Pitt walks in. I, do women still like Brad? I, I, don't, I don't care. Well, like I care what you all like in men, right? 
Boaz, Hollywood superstar, no doubt, he walks in and Ruth is just, is just thinking, that is a man, if there ever was one. But more importantly is Boaz sees Ruth. No doubt sweaty, no doubt wore out, no doubt not looking her best. And he is stunned by her beauty. And it just so happens by the providence of God that Boaz is, can be the kinsman redeemer of Naomi and Ruth. And so the two are married. And from that marriage comes uh, a son who would be the grandfather of the greatest king of Israel. Once again, we have a story of an outsider a pagan Gentile who by faith is brought into the family of God, both give birth to ancestors of Christ. Now, the reason this is so significant is because the Old Testament is clear about why God has called Israel to be his people, not because he has racial preference, but because he, through the people of Abraham, through the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the nations may be blessed. So we see this. We saw it last week, so we won't go through all the details. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Remember, God promises Abraham, yes, a son, yes, a land, yes, a nation. But the purpose is that through you, all the nations may be blessed. We likewise can see the same thing in Isaiah 42 where Israel is described there as, as a light unto the nations. The idea was that, that, that like the Garden of Eden, the, the borders and the influence of, of Israel would expand reaching the nations. And so what they wanted Israel to be was a common sea place. Here is the temple of God. Here is the presence of God. Here is the people and the family of God. All, will all the nations gather and together worship Him in spirit and truth. And the the problem for Israel became not when they were a light to the nations, but when they allowed the nations to be a light unto them. Then comes Jesus, right? And what is it that Jesus does? The second miracle narrative in Matthew's gospel involves Jesus healing a Gentile servant. What we see there is in Matthew 8, Jesus heals a Jewish leper and a sick and dying Gentile servant. Jesus is going not just to Israel, but to the nations. John chapter 12, in the final week of Jesus, on the eve of his execution, we see Jesus gathering to himself, not just his disciples, but his disciples bring to him a group of Greeks, Gentiles, and they want to know more about the kingdom of God. It is that seminal moment in John's gospel where Jesus shows us that this is why I came. Not just so that Israel may know of the kingdom of God, but that all the kings of the earth may know that I rule and reign. I am savior of all the kingdoms of the earth. And what is it that Jesus said prior to his ascension? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Notice, don't just go to the people of Israel. Don't just go to the Samaritans. No, go to the nations. And this has been the reach of the church to this day. Even this month with the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, the point is to reach the nations. But what we see here, not just in the story of Israel, but particularly in the stories of Ruth and Rahab and others, particularly in this portion of the genealogy, is how not only in Jesus' genealogy do we see grace for the broken, but, for, but grace for the outsider. The gospel welcomes all who do not belong to it. But here's the secret. None of us here belong to the family of God. 
The temptation, particularly for many American evangelicals, is because, because my daddy was a Baptist. I'm a Baptist. God knew I was going to be a Baptist. So, he could, so, so I've, I've, I've got a, a, a step ahead of everyone else. But the truth is, none of us deserve the grace of God. Yet, yet here we are. And it isn't until we, we discover our unworthiness can we be drawn into adoption. Adoption into the family of God. How many people in our city of Frankfurt right now, of over 50,000 people, over 40,000 of which are lost, feel like they've gone too far. They're unworthy. Things are too broken. They feel as if they are outsiders, unwelcome to be insiders. And how often did Jesus tell parables about bring any who would come. They are welcome here at the banquet table. Why? Because the gospel goes to the nations. The gospel reaches anyone. If only we would humbly see ourselves in that story and see our neighbors deserving equally of the same grace. See, isn't this really the whole point of the genealogy? The whole point of the genealogy isn't to say, man, uh, look at this. This is a kingly line. Abraham's perfect. Isaac is perfect. Jacob is perfect. Judah is perfect. Perez is perfect. Ram is perfect. Solomon is perfect. Nashon is perfect. Uh, Boaz is perfect. Jesse is perfect. Obed is perfect. That's not the point of the genealogy. It is to say that Jesus came for people like them. Jesus came for us. Regardless of who is saying that, insider, outsider, grace is sufficient. This is why we say that Jesus is a true and better Rahab. For the sake of time, we'll just look at Rahab a little deeper. Something strange happened early on in the Christian church when they went back over the story of of Jericho following the resurrection of Christ. And you, you can read the early church fathers uh, after the close of the New Testament. You'll find they do something strange. Beginning with at least Clement of Rome, who died in the first century, he viewed Rahab Scarlet, as well as others, as a uh, type of, uh, representing the blood of Christ. And I did, did some study of this. I thought it was a bit of a stretch, but there is, I do think there's something to this. In fact, early one of the first times we see a scarlet thread or scarlet cord in the Bible is actually in Genesis 38. We looked at this story last week. You remember that Tamar is, is, ends up getting with her father-in-law after a series of events. And, and what happens is uh, you got Perez and Zerah are born, right? And, and Zerah at first is starting to be born. And so they, they quickly tie a scarlet thread around him. But somehow Perez is born first. I can't explain that. Don't want to explain that. We're moving on. Okay? Now, the purpose of the scarlet thread was to signify this one is the firstborn. That is significant when it comes to inheritance and everything else in, in an ancient Near Eastern culture. So, so the oldest brother gets the, 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 most of the inheritance. However, in the story of uh, Tamar and Judah's kids, it isn't Zerah that gets the, 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 the promised inheritance. It's actually Perez. Much the same way that Jacob receives the inheritance, even though as, as, he, as a twin, he is not the firstborn. Esau's the firstborn. Much the same way we have conflict between Abel and Cain. Someone else is going to get the promises of God. In that case, it is said. It's a common thread throughout Genesis. 
But we see that, that scarlet thread. And in what, what we understand is that in truth, Perez was the firstborn who becomes the ancestor of Christ. We should also know that scarlet threads are also found in the curtains of the tabernacle and in the high priest's ephod. Scarlet is the color of blood. We're not talking about red. We're talking about scarlet. This is the color of blood. So there in the tabernacle, there upon the priest, we see the symbolism of blood reminding us of a need of atonement for our sins can only be washed and forgiven by the blood of the lamb. And scarlet is the color of blood and that is significant. Just as the blood of the Lamb protected the Jews amid the Passover, the judgment on Egypt, scarlet protected Rahab and her family from God's wrath upon Jericho. It's striking, isn't it? That the Jews will use scarlet blood for, to protect themselves from the judgment of God upon, upon the nations. And Rahab will do the same thing. Now, we must be careful here, and this is but just, just a survey of this theme. We must be careful not to read too much into the scarlet motif throughout the Bible. But I will say, I don't think it's an accident that there at the foot of the cross, we find not just a crown of thorns upon the head of Jesus, but a robe that is scarlet. Isn't that what Matthew tells us? What were the soldiers gambling over? Scarlet robe. Why is this so significant? Because Jesus is a true and better Rahab who comes to give his own blood so that people like Rahab with a broken past and a broken heart and a broken home life and everything broken and those who feel as if they are unworthy of grace outside the camp Jesus himself goes outside the city for people like them, for people like you and me. That is what Christmas is really all about. Let's pray.